0: Warning. This week's Drabblecast story is a little creepy, in a it-puts-the-lotion-on-its-skin kind of way. Probably not anything you can't handle, unless you're a pansy, and even in that case, I bet you'll still listen, despite this warning. Waiting for the part of the story that has lotion in it. Cucumber melon! Enjoy. welcome to the Drabblecast, episode 134. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. The theme of this week's show is tattoos. But first, we've got to check in on Drabblecast cryptozoology expert Connor Chodesworth in part three of our ongoing nature documentary. In search of the Mongolian deathworm, with Connor Chodesworth. Few things in the entire world are as mysterious and elusive and utterly fantastical. as the lorax, which emerges only in the most rare of moments, from the shorn trunks of truffala trees to lobby against big thneed factories. However, one other such mystery is the Mongolian deathworm, a cryptic yet very real inhabitant of the Gobi Desert. As of yet, I've had no luck collecting any actual data on the rare beast which the locals describe in an overwrought, contrived, and plodding manner, might I add, as having the ability to spit sulfuric acid from their mouths and bolts of electricity from their booty holes. So far, I've spent three dehydrated weeks wandering, raving half-mad throughout the roofless desert terrain. In addition, I've somehow accidentally killed Bono. But I've made it back to base camp, and with the aid of technology and a different research team, we're exploring a new device. Sex. We plan on arousing the worm with a hot, sexy deathworm decoy. We've gutted the swollen, fetid corpse of a nearby rotting camel, and extracted the animal's large intestine. After a few minor cosmetic adjustments, we've transformed the bloody, putrid casing into a smoking hot female deathworm. Classically feminine, but at the same time, oh, slipped a little. That is if She's gonna be in here for, for three we hours. I can't do it. Talk about a bitch slap. We've named our worm decoy, Heather, after our senior producer's mindless, blathering 15-year-old daughter. What, hey, who said that? And we've also named the primary wormhole after Bono, as it's through this very hole that he was carried to his doom by one of the deadly creatures. Heather is rigged to a pulley contraption, dangling precariously just at the tip of the gaping Bono hole. Attached to Heather is a seismetric transponder, a device that we hope will allow us to communicate with the deathworm by recoding speech into ground vibrations. I found it on eBay for $14.99. The bald-headed guy from Ghost Hunters was selling it along with an EVP recorder, which supposedly picks up and records unusual, barely audible frequencies. I have my doubts that it will work, because he's rated at only four stars. So, we'll see, get my money back. That's just the chance you take when you buy something online, I guess. It's just so convenient, though. But anyways, as a mediator, we've recruited someone skilled in the subtle art of seduction from Dateline NBC's to catch a predator. I'm Chris Hansen. He's confident. Arrogant, even, about his ability to coax up mythical animals from the ground using only camel intestine doled up as a saucy deathworm Lolita. We begin. I give the signal to lower Heather into Bono's gaping wormhole. Chris Hansen instantly gets to work. Hello, how are you doing? Can I tease and please your blank with my tongue and make you blank over and over? Nothing on the EVP. Chris, be sexier. Say it like you mean it. I like to make love. Really, Hansen. Is that all you've got? This isn't some friendless, hopelessly alone, middle-aged, mildly retarded man named Javier we're trying to entrap for God's sake. This is a mother goddamn god Mongolian mother looking deathworm. Now stop acting like a chaste, bashful camel intestine with glossy lipstick smeared all over it and start acting like a libidinous, underage, acid-spitting analid looking for a god and father figure. I'm bored and horny. I'm not buying it, Heather. Blanket, I want to see you so bad. We're not getting anything. Oh, fucking eBay. I'll make it feel really good for you on Wrestle Me. Wrestle you? Wait, what was that? What, what was that? Did anyone else hear that? I I heard something. For God's sakes, Hanson, don't stop now. Keep talking about wrestling. S- say that you want to wrestle with it. I want to wrestle you so freaking bad. We're getting some major readings on the EVP recorder. The Deathworm is taking the bait. I think it wants to couple with Heather. Dear God, look at the pulley. The line's gone taut. The Deathworm has got her. He's pulling her down. The line's going to break. We've lost her. Our mission is lost. Wait. Wait, the EVP recorder is picking something up again. The Deathworm is trying to communicate. It's trying to make contact. Listen! What's it saying? I, I don't understand. Can you make it out? Hansen. Why are you smiling? Well, there's something you gotta know. That's not a deathworm down there, is it? That can only mean one thing. All way, all way, all way. Dear God, Bono's alive. It's time for a Drabble. Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble is called Squid Ink, and it comes to us from Abby Hilton. Abby's had several Drabbles in our show, Sacrifices and My Cat Was Killed by Fairies, in episodes 69 and 82, respectively. The Dune Steve played her story, A Cat Prince Distinguishes Himself, on March 11th. She's also got a story in the spring issue of The Greatest Uncommon Denominator, and her works appeared in the April 2000 edition of Beyond Centauri. Her free podcast novel, The Prophet of Panamindora, is available at patiobooks.com and on her website, which you'll find in our show notes. And she has another podcast novel, launching in December. She lives in Portland, Oregon, and she's been known to dissect roadkill in the name of science. I thought it would be cool to get a tattoo with real squid ink. The long tentacle curls round and round my arm, the suction cups a vivid purple. It ached for months. The artist said my immune system might react to the ink, but the pain has finally subsided. My girlfriend doesn't like my tattoo. She says there's something wrong with me. She left this morning with red welts on her shoulders and a cut lip. I feel fine. I look at myself in the mirror, open my lips, click my beak, and go off to find breakfast. Our feature story this week is another from one of our favorites, Tim Pratt. So far from Tim, we've brought you a humor story, a somber story, and now here's a horror story. Tim Pratt lives in Oakland, California with his wife, Heather Shaw, and their son, River. His fiction and poetry have appeared in the Best of American Short Stories, 2005, The Year's Best Fantasy and Horror, Strange Horizons, Realms of Fantasy, Asimov's, and The Year's Best Fantasy, among others. So without further ado, Bonesigh by Tim Pratt. One. I sit at the table and work on my bonsai scar. I press the silver head of the meat tenderizer into my left thigh, stippling the skin. I do not feel pain. I scarcely feel the pressure. My nerves are dead there on my left thigh, where I grow my scar. Matches, hot needles, knives and time. I tend my scar. I do not control it. Skin and muscle are unpredictable. This is not like painting a picture or carving a piece of wood. The flesh knows its own logic. The bruises come strangely, the healing process unevenly. I collaborate with my flesh. The space between intention and accident That is the place where God lives. I put the tenderizer down on the white formica table and look at my bonsai scar. It is like a flower, a jellyfish, a pinwheel of raised flesh, yellow bruises, subcuteness hemorrhaging. Is it in process? Nothing but process? Or someday will I be finished? Will I see the face of God, the expression of revelation? or will I see the back parts of God, as Moses saw? Only time and painful tenderness will tell. Two. I sit on a bench with a bored officer of the court while my daughter Crystal goes down the slide in the park over and over. My ex-wife was the only person who knew about my bonsai scar, my single devotion. When she decided to leave me, she told the court about my scar. She had taken pictures of my scar while I slept, and she showed them to the judge. The court decided that someone like me, who hurts himself so methodically, might try to hurt his own child, as if I do not understand the division between self and other, the difference between personal sacrifice and inexcusable attack. My ex-wife left me and took Crystal, and now I only see my daughter in the park with a chaperone every few weeks. My ex-wife has a new husband, a thin man who sells insurance, a thin man with a thin mustache and black hair slicked back With something oily that shines. He is secretly a monster, and I fear for my daughter living in his house. I hope my scar will take a final shape soon and guide me, for I feel close upon despair. I have stepped up my devotions, and my whole left leg aches. Crystal slides Her pigtails fly behind her. She cries, Banzai! And she slides. Three. My ex-wife has died. The brakes failed on her car and she plunged over a bridge into a swamp. They found water in her lungs. She did not die on impact. She had to inhale swamp water, trapped upside down in her car, before she could die. I go to the funeral in a small country church we never attended. The monster, my dead ex-wife's husband, sits in the first pew, holding my daughter's hand. I can see the truth about him crawling under his skin. His scalp bulges and ripples as the monster inside him shifts. No one else notices. Perhaps God has given me the power to see monsters. Perhaps God wants me to help myself. The monster and my daughter walk past the coffin. Crystal weeps. The monster holds her hand and will not release her. I know the truth. The monster, he cut my ex-wife's brake lines, planned her death so he could have Crystal all to himself. For some terrible purpose. I wish my scar would advise me. For... We named her Crystal because crystals start small and then grow because they begin simple and beautiful and over time become complex and beautiful. Like my Scar. But we couldn't call our daughter Scar and even if we could have, my dead ex-wife would have refused. Five. The scar does not guide me. I lash myself with coat hangers. I burn myself with lie. But more than ever before, the window into Revelation seems hopelessly opaque. I feel I have reached an impasse, that I have done all I can. Now all my work is the equivalent of useless cross-hatching, obsessive shading, adding irrelevant details. If my scar will not guide me, I must guide myself. I'll go to the monster's lair. Six. The front door is unlocked and I go inside. There is some light from the windows but it is dimmed by curtains. This is a squalid little house. My dead ex-wife was an excellent housekeeper, but in her absence, the monster's house has reverted to type. I almost expect to see a heap of gnawed bones in the corner, a pallet made of rotting animal skins. But there are only old newspapers, empty aluminum cans. He is a subtle monster. I have never been here before. So I creep up in the dimness towards a hallway. The house smells of meat, of fat boiled with beans. I listen, and I hear a voice. Crystals. I want to scoop her up and take her away to freedom, away from the monster. But what if he is with her right now? Who else would she be talking to? I step softly to a half-closed door in the hallway and look inside. Crystal is sitting on the floor, talking seriously to a red-haired doll. Crystal's dress is soiled and torn. The monster is trying to dress her as if she were his own offspring. A monster herself. What the hell? The monster says behind me. I turn. The monster stands in the hallway, dressed in boxer shorts and a dirty white t-shirt. He is unshaven and his eyes are red. I can see the fires smoking inside his head, the tentacles coiled in his belly, the monster under his thin flesh disguise. Stay away from her, he shouts and he runs at me. I throw up my hands to ward him off. He stumbles, tripping on an empty whiskey bottle on the floor. I know what will happen before it does. It is like God grants me the vision as a warning or a courtesy. When the monster falls, he stumbles into me and drives his knife into my thigh, into the heart of my bonsai scar. Imagine a gardener devoted to his bonsai. Controlling its water, its nourishment, its temperature, its access to light. And then, the bonsai is infested with wood lice, shredded by cat's claws, smashed with a fire poker, chopped with a hatchet. Imagine how I feel. The knife sticks in my thigh, and all the dead nerves come to life, wake up and scream pain at me. There are arteries in the thigh, blood highways. Did the monster cut one? Will I die? Will I see God's face? Or even his back parts when I die? Crystal is screaming. The monster is on the floor, but he's getting up. I pull the knife out of my thigh. It hurts worse coming out than it did going in. The monster turns his face to me. His eyes are full of smoke, blood, fangs, shards of glass. I put the knife into one of his eyes. Seven. Did he ever hurt you? I ask. Crystal sits on the edge of the bathtub, her eyes wide and vacant as I bandage my thigh, cover the bloody remnants of my ruined bonsai scar. Did he ever touch you in a bad way? I ask. No, she says. But I know he would have. Eight. Weeks after I saved Crystal from the monster, we sit in a motel room. She is better, talking more, glad to be with me. She feels we are on a grand adventure. I have been careful not to let her see my bonsai scar, only changing the bandages in the bathroom when she sleeps. But today, I am taking the bandages off for good, and Crystal is curious to see my healed wound. I remove the wrapping and look at the scar. There is a large, pale knot of scar tissue in the center where the monster's knife went in. I look at my thigh, sadly, the waste of all my work, the face of God, marred forever. Daddy, Crystal says, touching my scar gently. It's an eye. I look at her, then at my scar, and I begin to smile. She's right. The monster's stabbing wound has not ruined my bonsai scar, but has instead completed it, providing the final touch. Formed the pupil of an eye. One eye, like a cyclops. I think of the monster, the way I stabbed his eye out. Monsters have only a single eye, but my scar is not meant to reveal a monster's face. I am blessed. The face of God is forming on my body, responding to my devotions. But I have vastly underestimated the size of God's face. I will need more than the flesh of one thigh to reveal it. I will need my entire body, chest, arms, head, legs, Looking at my daughter, at the fascination in her face, I realize something else, that the revelation is not meant for me. I am only the medium for revelation. I am the book, not the reader. My body will become the face of God, and my daughter will look upon me and know the secrets of life, the ways and means of earth and heaven. My disappointment is brief and selfish, and then I am glad. What more could a father want? What better reason is there to sacrifice one's flesh, one's self, than for the good of your child? Bring me my bag, sweetheart, I say. And when she does, I take out a knife. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Sorry, no lotion. Maybe next time. Let's do some story feedback. Harken back four episodes to Trifecta Special 9 when we ran three flash pieces about self-deception. Dinosaur by Bruce Holland Rogers, which was about an old man going senile and thinking he was a dinosaur, Monster Talk by Steve Calvert, which was about a disgruntled monster living in a child's closet, and The Curse of the Androids' Wife by Bruce Boston, which was about a woman married to the perfect mate, an android. Swamp said, I think Monster Talk was my favorite. I think Dave Thompson's reading was perfect for the mood of the piece. A good match. I also thought Dinosaur was a very well-written story, but not so much into the last one, Curse of the Androids' Wife. Internal Logic, however, liked the story, saying, I thought that android story rocked. I think of this as a story about a person with narcissistic personality disorder and the horrific extent she's been able to reach with wealth and super-effective AI technology at her disposal. Talia said, Dinosaur brought tears to my eyes. This, for me, was one of the most moving stories I've heard here, possibly the most. And I didn't find the very end hopeless at all. It was just a returning to his beginnings, very Circle of Life-ish. The dementia that took away everything else left him free to be the dream he had as a child. I guess you could argue it's bad to lose touch with reality, but then reality is subjective. Maybe he'll spend his last days in a dream, but if he's happy and innocent like he was once upon a time, that sounds like win to me. Yes, indeed, Talia. Becoming a dinosaur is always a win. Speaking of thunder lizards and winning, season three of the Super Animal Mega Beast deathmatch competition is underway, folks the most pointless, hardcore debate you'll experience this year. What it is. We make up several totally badass animals with awesome enhancements, get drunk and debate with each other which one would win and why, and throw out each round as an R-rated podcast, trying to sway you listeners, because ultimately you decide who will win with your votes and who will be crowned the most awesome, imaginary megabeast ever. It gets pretty intense, because once a super animal contestant wins a round, he gains various badass attributes of his felled enemies, making him an even more absurd but totally wicked genetic train wreck. You can call in our Mega Beasts hotline and leave a message, swaying listeners yourself, or you can lobby for your favorite unholy abomination on the Mega Beasts section of our discussion forums, where the bulk of listener debate goes on. The first podcast should be shooting down the feed sometime next week, where our editors and special guests will critique and analyze a made-up battle between a radioactive fire-breathing lion, a large mutant rocket-propelled sea turtle, and a demonic kangaroo that hurls fireballs and has a portal to hell in his pouch. It won't be pretty. Check it out and vote at megabeasts.com. And you can go to the Megabeast section at the top of our webpage, strablecast.org, to subscribe to the podcast. The highlight, most everyone agrees, is seeing the artwork which MegaBeast savant Bo Kyre produces for each competitor as they advance through the ranks. It'll blow your mind. Bo also whipped up our cover art for this week's episode, so special thanks to him for that as well. Check out his twisted work at BoKire.com. Hundred character TwitFic winner this week rode into our forums on a dark horse a few weeks ago and stirred up the pot of regular TwitFic warriors by laying down some formidable one- or two-sentence stories. Algernon Sidney is dead, is the winner of this week's 100-character twitfic story. Twat this bewed out on Twitter earlier this week. Oich, may your head grow in the ground like an onion. The old Yiddish curse used to be harmless, but there was a new god today. Get in on the 100-character story Melee in our discussion forums, which you can find linked off of our main page. Our kick-ass donor of the week is... Michael Lindberg. Michael lives in Sweden, where he makes a modest living as a dad-slash-PhD student in engineering. Between family and work, he tries to find time to do yoga and play games with his friends. He doesn't have much to plug, he's published the occasional scientific paper here and there. The only work worth mentioning so far is his son Mattis, and that was a joint publication. Oh, isn't that just precious? He hopes that more content producers will start to understand that there are people outside of the US who have money and want to part with it in exchange for quality, downloadable content. Yes, I'm talking to you, movie industry, and you, music industry. Give Sweden a chance, Jack Valenti. For those of you new to the Drabblecast who want to catch up on past shows that get archived for space on our main page and feed, we have a great fan archive going on, set up by our buddy Tom Baker, which has all of our episodes, Bartles, and such, nicely organized for easy mp3 download. It's at gardenstreet.org slash Drabblecast Archive. You can find a link in our show notes, or off of our main page, where it says Drabblecast Episode Archive. I just got to thinking about that because this week's show knocked episode 109, Babbel Probe, by David D. Levine, into our archive. And man, was that a freaking awesome story. Why wait till Wednesday every week for your Jabble fix when there's 100 archived shows waiting for you to download? Share them with your friends. The Drabble is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means as long as you don't alter or sell our content, you can do whatever the crap you want with it. If you like this week's show, consider making a donation to us, either just once in whatever amount you want, or for five bucks a month with our automatic subscription option. We really appreciate the help. We love bringing you these stories every week, but it ain't cheap on our end, you know what I'm saying? Help a brother out. So that's our show. We'll see you next week. Till then, our staff is made up of co-editors, Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that I want to wrestle you so freaking bad.